I'd invite you to turn with me to Psalm 25. Psalm chapter 25, and we're going to look at the whole um, psalm. Hear the word of the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They will be put to shame who are wantonly treacherous. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs the sinner in his way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble uh, his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant in his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will, instru- will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul, deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel. O God, out of all his troubles. Thus ends the reading of God's word. One of the reasons that I have heard from skeptics, especially Gen Zers and millennials, as to why they don't find Christianity attractive is this. I've never experienced them. I'm open, but I've never had an experience, any sort of experience with God that's changed my life. I heard someone express it this way. It's, I feel like I'm in a cosmic game of hide and seek. I'm seeking God, but he keeps hiding from me. As Christians, if we're honest, we struggle with connecting with God. For many of us, our relationship with the Lord is like a marriage relationship that's all but an empty shell. You've gone from intimate allies to acceptable roommates. Now, we may continue to go to prayer meetings, to go to church, to go to small group. But there's a struggle. There's an inner struggle in us. that, Or that sense that God is distant, intangible. And you know, I'm not even sure that he likes me. Does any of that resonate with you this morning? You ever go through periods like that? 
So how do we experience, or how do we connect with God? This psalm connects the dots to connecting to God, if you will. The answer, I think, that we get from the psalm is immensely helpful for believers as well as skeptics. The psalm begins with a promise and then emphasizes a posture. So if you're taking notes, that's going to be the structure of the sermon this morning. The promise of the guide and then the posture of the guided. So let's look at those two things together. First of all, the promise of the guide. The beauty of the psalm is that it contains this promise. He will guide you. He will guide you. Look at verse 12. Who then is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. So the person who fears the Lord, that's just another way of saying someone, uh, the person who lives by faith. And that's more than just asserting to certain truths of the Christian faith. It's the person who's awe-inspired, joyfully delighted in, and full of faith of the Lord, in the Lord type Christian. To that person, God promises guidance. God will instruct you. But we shouldn't look overlook the hope that's contained in that. One of the first memories that I have in Berlin is the day that I asked a Berliner for instructions on how to get from the middle of town to the Brandenburg Gate. My German at that point was quite sparse, but what I lacked in knowledge, I made up for in courage. So I walked up to a local Berliner and I said, Ich suche das Brandenburger Tor. I'm looking for the Brandenburg Gate. And he paused thoughtfully for a couple seconds, and then he smiled and said, viel Erfolg damit. Good luck with that. And he walked off. (laughs) That's Berliner humor for you. But let's pretend for a second that he actually gave me instructions, and he described all the twists and the turns, the road box, the, the, the lights, the alleys, the footpaths, and let's say it more than likely would have overwhelmed me. It would have been far too complicated for me to understand. I'd get overwhelmed, confused, and more than likely, I'd just give up. But let's just pretend for a minute that he offered to go with me. Which would you rather have? The guidance or the guide? Guidance is not just something God gives you. It's something he does It talks about, um, the Bible doesn't, if you read through Scripture, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about how you get guidance, but it does talk a, a lot about the guide and a lot about the guided, what it means to be guided. If we miss that point, you'll get frustrated in your Christian walk. I would love to see a map of my life a map which shows where I am, where I should be going, how to get there. In other words, what's God's will for my life? Here's the problem. If God were to give me a map to my life, my guess is that it'd be far too complicated for me to understand. I'd get lost in the details. I'd get confused, and I'd overwhelmed. You see, the Lord knows my heart. He knows I don't need a map. I need a guide. That's what God's promising us 
in this psalm. But secondly, the, the posture of the guided. That's the promise in the psalm. The pos- but secondly, the posture of the guided. So what type of people do we need to become to be led by God? What's the posture of a follower? Four things. Saturated, teachable, forgiving, and listening. Saturated, teachable, forgiving, and listening. First of all, saturated. What do I mean by that? I often come to, to the Lord in prayer with questions like, what should I do about this situation? Or how should I decide in this situation? Lord, just show me the right way. Look at verse 4. David doesn't start with, I'm lonely, I'm feeling attacked, I don't know what to do, just tell me what to do. Those are themes that he'll bring up later in the psalm, but look where he starts. He says, Lord, show me your will. Show me your ways. Teach me your paths. So before I understand, before I know which path I should choose, I want to know yours, Lord. Where are you going? I want to know your path. I want to know your law. I want to know your word. I want to know your promises. I want to know your commands. Before I ask, what's your, before I ask about my way, I want to know about your way, O Lord. I want to be saturated in your way. Here's the problem. If I'm honest, I want shortcuts in the Christian life. I really do. I want to, I want the answers at the back of the book without having to study for a test. Here's what I've learned after a number of years walking with Jesus. There are no shortcuts. There are none. We need to saturate our minds so that like Hebrews 5, chapter 5, verse 13, it says our faculties are so trained that we can automatically distinguish between what's good and, uh, and evil, what's wisdom, and what's foolishness. Perhaps this analogy is helpful. There are no shortcuts to learning a language, a foreign language. When I started learning German, it sounded like somebody was firing a machine gun at me. It was loud, it was relentless, it was hard. And I couldn't distinguish between words and sentences and paragraphs. The Germans have a phrase, a great phrase, when you don't understand something, you say, Ich hab nur Bahnhof verstanden which loosely translates to what you just told me just sounded like one big train station. <laughs> it's just noise. Why did I struggle with German? Because my mind, my faculties weren't trained. But imagine, a new missionary comes to, you're on the mission field, you've been there for, oh, 21 years, and a new missionary comes to you and says, I've got a great plan to become fluent in Germany. Oh, oh, great. I'm going to do it in just a couple of years. Woohoo! All right. <laughs> that sounds phenomenal. How are you going to do it? Well, here's my plan. I'm going to get a, a, a German-English dictionary. I'm going to spend about 10 minutes a day. I'm going to get a bit of inspiration, think about it, and then I'm going to go out and I'm going to understand German in a couple of years. You know what I'd say with that? Viel Erfolg damit. Good luck with that. <laughs> We need to become followers who saturate ourselves in God's word. We need to immerse ourselves in it. It takes time to have our faculties trained. 
Do you want to make wise decisions to know good ones from bad ones? Start with this. Father, teach me your paths. Show me your ways. Guide me in your truth. Secondly, that saturated look at the, the second uh, posture of a follower is one who is teachable. Verse 9, it says that he leads or he guides the humble. The word here is actually teachable, compliant, follower, one who is obedient. One of my favorite books is by, uh, by George MacDonald. It's called The Princess and the Goblin. It's a fairy tale about a princess and goblins. <laughs> Go figure. Um, no, but it's a, it's a fairy tale about a princess named Irene, and her father sends her away to a house in the mountains to keep her safe from a great underground goblin kingdom. The problem is the goblins are already in the mountains, and they are burrowing their way through to get to her. So one day, her, her grandmother gives her something of extraordinary value, a ball of thread, just what every child wants, a ball of thread. But this thread is so perfect, so sheer, that you can't see it when it's spread out, but you can feel it. So she ties the thread to a ring and puts it on Irene's finger and, you know, and puts the ball of thread in a drawer, and she says this, Um, whenever you're in trouble, put the ring that's uh, under the pillow and then begin to feel your way along the thread. It will lead you back to me, back to safety. Irene gets all excited and the the grandmother says, but but, but hang on, (laughs) wait a second. I want you to understand, you must follow the thread. It may seem roundabout, uh, a roundabout way indeed, but you must not doubt the thread. Just remember, because you're holding one end and I'm holding the other. Days later, goblins break into the house. She hears them drawing close. She sticks the ring under a pillow, begins following the thread, and it makes no sense. It goes in, uh, it doesn't go in the direction she expects. It goes up the, you know, it go, rather than going up the stairs, it goes outside, and then it goes straight to the mountain where the goblins are. It feels like the, the thread is taking her straight into danger rather than safety. Finally, the thread ends at a rock wall. She falls down, cries in exasperation. He says, what is wrong with you, grandmother? You said this would take me to safety. It's putting me worse. She can't go back, because if you go back, the thread disappears. So she begins to dig through the rocks. Her fingers get bloody from the digging. And suddenly, she finds behind a rock wall her friend, Curdie, who's been captured. And Curdie stares in her in utter disbelief and wonders, how in the world did you find me? And Irene says, grandmother sent me. I have no idea why she had me come this way, but now I understand why. You see, Irene is humble. She's teachable. She's a follower. And that's often, in in her way, if we're honest, is often the way of a believer. The way often feels so wrong. It seems so dark, so confusing. But here's the question the psalmist is posing to us this morning. Do you trust the thread? Here's what I'm learning. 
in leadership and as a believer, it's often the places you don't want to go where you accomplish the things you've only dreamed of. It's in the darkness that you become most useful. You look at verse 10, and verse 10 reads a lot like Romans 8.28, if you're familiar with that verse. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of His covenant. What's that saying? God uses all the events of your life, even the mistakes, to bring you to a point where you are finally useful in a state to bring Him honor and glory. Our lives are not like GPS devices. You know, I don't know if this ever happened to you, you accidentally go the wrong way, and what happens? Recalculating, recalculating, make another wrong turn, recalculating. Our lives are not like GPS devices. God never, never recalculates. But if you were to show us the directions from the beginning, we'd never follow them. So when you make mistakes, do stupid things, say stupid things, and you will, there will be consequences. It's going to lead to brokenness. It will lead to times of winter. But all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the commands of His covenant. You know, that's the story you find from Genesis to Revelation. Jacob sins against Isaac. Isaac sins against Esau. You know, and Isaac, you know, he lies, cheats, has to leave home. He has a crummy life. The problems that he faces are the result of all the stupid decisions he made as a youth. Yet, in his exile, he meets Rachel, and from her comes the Messiah. You see, it wasn't plan B. Here's the point. You cannot mess up your life beyond the redeeming grace of God. You can't. Let me just put it logically. It's impossible because if you believe that, it's ultimately an insult to the sovereign power of God. Saturated, teachable, thirdly, forgiving Look at verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it's great. One of the things that keeps us from being humble and teachable is the lack of forgiveness in our lives. It stems ultimately from not really believing that you are forgiven greatly by the Lord. One of the greatest stories of forgiveness in Scripture, in all of Scripture, I find, is in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman, but Naaman's not the hero. A girl is. So Naaman's a Syrian general. That's like a prime, uh, prime minister. He's the head of, uh, head of the military, but he has a devastating problem in his life. He has leprosy. We learn that from 2 Kings 5 that he sends or is sent out marauding bands to northern Israel. And in one of those raids, he captures this girl. Now, that background should lead us to absolutely wonder, pause at the first words out of this girl's mouth. Listen. Master has leprosy. This is what she says. O Lord, oh, that my master would go to the prophet of Israel to find healing. Let's sink in. 
One English pastor brought out this insight for me. He said, don't forget, this girl was captured by that man. He most likely has already killed her family. It'd be shocking if he hadn't. She'd never see her homeland again. She'd never see her family again. This man had ruined her life. There's a lot of other things I would have prayed. (laughs) Oh, Lord, may his fingers fall off (laughs) and his nose. (laughs) May he rot for all I care. For all he's done to me, may all his plans come to ruin. That makes sense to me. That's not what she does. Here's the point. The only way she became useful, the only way that God could use her for his glory, the only reason we remember her at all, is because she forgave him. She followed the thread. She'd seen greater darkness than most of us in this room have or ever will, but she never let go of the thread. So one of the things that can block wise decisions or that sense of God's nearness in your life, the sense of God's uh, guidance in your life, is when you don't obey or or where we have areas of our life where we don't obey. As a believer, it is so easy to hold on to bitterness. I'm learning this in leadership. I thought I was a relatively likable person until I became a leader. And then you start having to make decisions where you realize, I'm not going to make everyone happy, and you won't. And the people who you don't make happy, they'll go after you. They'll do anything they can to take you down. But there's plenty of, and and one of the things I'm learning in leadership, if I do not learn to forgive those people, it will crush my leadership. But we have plenty of other sins that we can hide as believers You know, you're sleeping with somebody you shouldn't. In your loneliness, you've developed escapist sins, and you're a master at hiding them. Stingy with time, selfish, and the list could go on. It's the humble and the forgiving he guides and uses. So saturate your mind with the Word of God so that your faculties distinguish between wisdom and foolishness. Follow the thread of obedience wherever it may lead, and forgive in order that you become useful again. Fourthly, listening. Look at verse 14. The NIV translates it this way. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Literally, it says the the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Some translations like the ESV have the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. What's he getting at? I think this brings us full circle. Think about it. Friends are those who tell secrets to one another, right? I mean, the deeper the friendship, the more you know about one another. And the things that you've revealed to one another connect you to one another. <clears throat> so think about how friendships develop. You get to know one, you know, know one another, you chit-chat, you spend time together. But then you begin to reveal things about yourself. Kind of throw them out there. Just kind of lob them out there, right? I'm lonely. I struggle to love. I worry a lot. And those moments can be some of the most meaningful moments, especially when the other person says, you too? I thought I was the only one. And suddenly connection. It's an exchange of secrets, the vulnerability and the transparency that leads to intimacy. You see, one of the things that makes Christianity 
utterly unique as a religion is that God just doesn't leave us a book and say, viel Erfolg damit. Good luck with that. He doesn't say, here's a great manual for the successful Christian life. Read it. Christianity is about a personal relationship with a living God who doesn't just offer a map. He's a guide. He offers or just guidance. He promises to be our guide. He offers relationship with us. He offers us secrets. He tells us secrets. What does that mean? What could that look like? When God reveals secrets, he helps us to see things about him, about us, that we haven't seen before. It could be like this. You're reading scripture, and then suddenly the lights go on. And you begin to go, oh, wait, wait, wait a second. If he's like that, if that's true, why am I worried? If what I'm reading here is true, why do I get angry, scared? That's true when I'm reading here. Why am I tempted? Why well, haven't seen this before? You'll find those moments as you saturate yourself in his word because he's telling you secrets. He's showing you things that are secret to you. You've never seen them before, but he's engaged in the process. So we started with the promise of the guide and then looked at the posture of a believer who seeks to be led by God. Let me return to one other promise in the New Testament. A promise that's actually even stronger, in my opinion. Ephesians 2, 8, uh, 8 and 9 picks up a number of the themes that we found that we find in Psalm 25. In verse 10 we read, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has, had pre- has prepared in advance for us to do, to do them. There's at least two great things about these verses. The first thing is it says, for we are God's workmanship. Another translation uh, you could easily say, we are God's craftsmanship. Because in the Greek it says, you're God's poema. A poema is, is just a work of art. It's a word from which we get poem. What he's saying is, You are a work of art. Everything about you in your life is absolutely designed. Everything about you is a part of God's craftsmanship. One of the the enemy, one of the whispers, the lies of the enemy is this. You're really not that special. There's really nothing unique about you. Or... You know, others could also could be more useful than you in this situation. And, and logically, that might be true. <laughs> There's plenty of people who are a better leader than I am, better husband than I am, better pastor, better preacher than I am. But it misses the point of the verse. God has put you where, we, where you are because you are his artwork in that situation. You're designed to be where you are. It wasn't an accident. That sense of call is vital for a disconnected Christian. Gen Zers, millennials, one of the questions, you bring so many gifts to this body, but one of the questions you're asking, which is a penetrating and powerful question, is this. Where do I find my identity? And you find any number of podcasts and YouTubers who are more than willing to offer you an answer to that question. None of them 
will give you an answer like you'll find here in Scripture. You are God's artwork. An artist loves his art. He pours himself into his art. You want a unique identity, one rooted in something that doesn't fade with your opinion or yourself or any other opinion of you? Look no further than Scripture. Secondly, God has created good works beforehand for you to walk in. That's exciting. (laughs) That's really exciting. You see, you have been carefully designed to do things that only you can do. That means all your experiences, all your mistakes, all your troubles, all your trials have made you to be who you are. They have crafted you to, to make the speeches that only you can make. To minister to people to to whom only you can minister. To lead people whom only you can effectively lead. God has prepared those works for us and he's prepared you to walk in them. It's an amazing statement about the artist and his art. Let me close with this. When I look at the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, when I follow the thread of God's rescue mission to make all things perfect again, the focus of His story is on a Messiah, on a Savior who was saturated in God's Word. You think about it. Jesus spent all eternity with the Father before coming to earth, and yet when he got to earth, he felt the need to retreat and spend time with the Father. We would ask over and over again, Father, show me your will. Show me your way. Teach me your path. You see, God's word was his comfort in suffering. It was his wisdom when challenged. It was his weapon when attacked. He was teachable, and he was willing to follow the thread regardless of where it went, and it went to a cross. Why? Why would the thread grow there, go there? So that we could pray verse 11. It's the centerpiece of the entire psalm, and if I had time, I'd love to show that to you. Here it is. Lord, pardon my sins, for they are great. You see, God doesn't come into your life in, into your life in spite of your sin. He comes into your life because of it. He comes into your, your misery and your pain and your brokenness and your weakness. Why? Because He's that kind of God. He's a God of grace. He cares about you. One of the most amazing scenes in all of Scripture, comes right at the, the beginning, right after Adam and Eve have sinned. They go into hiding, and, and, and God goes out seeking. And he asks the question, where are you? Where are you? You see, I think the writer of that article who described Christianity as a cosmic game of hide-and-seek got it right. But the role's reversed. Reality is... We're the ones hiding. We're the ones prone to wander. Why? Because we have saturated our minds in other things. We're following other threads obediently. We refuse to to be forgiven and therefore struggle to forgive others. But the promise of Scripture is this. The message from Genesis to Revelation is God is a God who does not stop seeking and saving the lost. 
When you begin to believe in that sort of God, in a God who pursues in order to forgive, in order to restore, you will experience a love, a presence, and a hope like you have never experienced in your life. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take your words and make them alive in us. We are so prone to wander and intentionally move out of the way of your seeking, searching, and saving grace. I pray for those who are sitting here this morning who are following other threads, who are enslaved to other idols, who are searching hope in other places, that you would show how your grace is peerless. It is matchless. There's no greater hope. There is no greater love. And it's rooted in history. For all of us who have followed you for years, you see the proneness of our hearts to wander. May we quickly turn, grab the thread with hope and security, knowing, knowing your grace forgives, your grace leads. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.